It's time for America Outdoors Radio, the show that covers the outdoor scene across the U.S. of A. and the entire continent. Fishing, hunting, conservation, outdoor recreation, and great destinations, we cover it all every week. It's your country, your outdoors. Let's explore it together with your host, John Cruz. Welcome to the show. I hope you've had a good week, and I hope you're going to have a great weekend. And with any luck, we're going to inspire you to get out there hunting and fishing and just outdoors enjoying nature this week as well. And I'm going to have some help with that through not one, not two, but three spectacular guests that I am so proud to have on the show today. In just a minute, you're going to hear from Will Brantley. He's the hunting editor for Field and Stream. He's an avid turkey hunter. That's what he's doing right now. And he's going to share a pretty humorous story about a turkey hunt that he had in Tennessee about a year ago. And let's just say things didn't go exactly as planned. Another guest you'll hear from today is Ken Perot. He is the outdoors rambler and he has indeed been rambling as of late he has been hunting chucker at a preserve in virginia with his boykin spaniel named jameson and he's been down to louisiana did a little saltwater fishing on a pretty sketchy day out on the water and he also got to sample some of the wonderful cajun fare they have available in louisiana and on top of that he got to go to a very special museum that's not outdoors related but i think you'll want to hear about it Following our conversation with Ken, we're going to have an extended conversation with Mike Arnold. Now, Mike is actually a professor at the University of Georgia, but he is also an avid African big game safari hunter. And he has written a book titled Bringing Back the Lions that is all about a part of Mozambique called the Zambezi Delta. Now, this area back in the 60s, it was a literal paradise and wildlife flourished, but then War came to Mozambique, and the populations of all the animals in this area plummeted, along with lasting damage to the habitat there. However, after the war ended, paradise was restored. And the story of how hunters helped to do that and turn things around, not just for the wildlife, but for the local tribespeople who live in this area, is an absolutely amazing one that you've just got to hear today. So without further ado, let's get things started and talk a little turkey. Next up on America Outdoors Radio, if you go to fieldstream.com, you're going to find a really fun article there. It's actually a collection of short stories about stupid turkeys and how even shooting a stupid turkey can be a difficult thing to do. And one of the stories in there is from none other than Will Brantley. He is the hunting editor for Field and Stream, and we are catching him in Texas. He's down there with his family for spring break, and I understand you just bagged a gobbler this morning. We sure did, John. We're down here in, in uh, Texas hunting the north zone, and it's really hot, but we did get a bird and called him up. Looked like my little boy was going to get a shot at him, but he ended up sort of skirting us, and he went around behind us. My buddy killed him, but he was, a, he was a big bird, big, nice spurs, and he put on a really good show, so we had a lot of fun. and So, yeah, good start to the spring break for sure. Well, that's fantastic, and uh, things went a lot better on your Texas hunt today than they did with the story you're about to tell. Let's talk about this really rainy day where you went turkey hunting. Oh, man, I uh, I don't know that I really want to get into that one again, John. <laughs> it, it, it brings up painful memories. It's been a year ago. 
You know, I'm a turkey hunting nut. I, I love to hunt everything, but I would rather turkey hunt than anything. I just I love turkeys. I love their behavior. I love calling them. I love the strategy of getting in range. And, and I also uh, really love the process of scouting them, particularly on, you know, big chunks of public land where I've got room to roam around. And, you know, there's a few areas there close to home down in Tennessee. Well, I live in Kentucky, but I, but I hunt down in Tennessee, too. We live right on the state line. And there's some areas there that, that I just really enjoy chasing birds. And I've, I've chased them there for years. And I got drawn for a two-day quota hunt last year. And it often goes, you know, we had forecast for a lot of rain and stuff the first morning of the hunt. And that's, you know, it's kind of par for the course in April. So anyway, so I, I was I was scouting that evening and I, and I saw this bird in a, in a bean field by himself. He's standing out there in the rain and the forecast was calling for heavy rain again the next morning. But I, I knew I needed to be there close. And so started at daylight. Didn't hear the bird at all. Really, it didn't seem like I was around a turkey at all. It was just pouring down rain. But it ended up faring off a couple hours into the morning, and the sun came out, and it was pretty. And, and those conditions, I guess, I saw just on the road and uh, caught him. He was out strutting just full view. And, you know, on the one hand, I was I was pumped to have found him. On the other hand, like, he was right on the road. And this being a public spot, I knew he wasn't going to be there for long before this spot gets hunted really hard. And I, I knew he wasn't going to be there long before another hunter saw him and and try to get after him. And so I was being pretty aggressive with him, and I and I pulled him and his hens up. They were in gun range, but I, I didn't have a really good shot at him. I was kind of down in a little creek bottom and was waiting to get a shot through the edge, you know, out into the field. And sure enough, another truck comes by. They see him. They, they, I hear him slowing down. And bird drops strut, and he and the hens take off through the woods. They oh, no. skirt around me, cross the road in front of my truck, and I see him going up over a ridge on the other side of the road. I'm thinking, well, that's probably over, but I'll give it a little bit, and then I'll try to get up over that ridge and see if I can fire him up again. And so I went after him, got up over the ridge, and just about got set down, and he gobbled, and he was just out of sight. And I hit a call, and no more than hit a call, I saw him coming, he pops up, and it was, <laughs> you couldn't ask for a prettier, you know, 20, 25-yard shot. I don't remember just exactly how close it was, but he was close. And put it on him, and the gun clicked. It was like the stuff of nightmares. You know, you have that reoccurring <laughs> nightmare of, uh, you know, you, you've gone on the hunt of a lifetime if you get to load your gun, and uh, and that's exactly what this was, except I had a Dutch yell. So the bird, he gets a little squirrely, and he starts kind of sidestepping out of there, and I'm reaching up, I'm shooting an autoloader, and I'm trying to rack one out. And I'm, on the one hand, like I'm trying to be kind of quiet and ginger about it, and on the other hand, like I'm trying to rack my gun hard enough that it'll actually fire the next shot, and by the time I got reloaded, he was spooked, but he wasn't like he wasn't freaking out, you know. And and I don't know where his hens went, but he he had left them by this point. And so he just goes out of sight about the time I get reloaded. And I'm thinking, well, there's two chances I've I've definitely screwed him up. And sort of sitting there thinking about what to do, and he gobbles. <laughs> and so he gobbles up ahead, and I'm like, all right, well, maybe I can call him in the third time. And so I sneak ahead, probably 50 yards, call at him, and he. I, I see him down the ridge, probably 70 yards, and he's full strut. He's just, you know, the sun shines on him. He's gobbling, and I'm thinking, you know, he's going to walk his way right down this ridge, too. Well, so this this area that I'm hunting is, is really hilly, and he kind of caught me, um, you know, I, I guess kind of because I was a little bit hurried. He sort of made me wait, break one of my cardinal rules about setting up in the woods. Is I, you know, I try to never set up, you know, too close to the lip of the hill. But I could see the bird, and he's coming right down the ridge to me, and I'm thinking everything's great. And right at the last second, like right at, you know, 50 yards, just before he gets in range, 
he sort of flanks me and uh, goes to goes to his right, my left, and out of sight. And he's just over the lip of this ridge, and I can hear him drumming, I can hear him coming. He gobbles, and I get twisted around, and I know that he this turkey is he's definitely close, he's definitely close enough to kill, but I can't see. And I know he is about to pop up just right in front of me, and he gives one final loud gobble, and his head comes up at inside ten yards, oh my and God. it's close, it's touch and go, and I shot. The turkey disappears, and I thought I'd just dropped him dead. Well, I stood up, and when I did, I, I see a gobbler running on the other side of the ridge, just just hoofing it down that ridge. Now I'm thinking, well, that's not my turkey. My turkey's laying over here dead, obviously. Well, there, there was no turkey laying there dead, and that one took flight and took off, and I'm like, how in the world did I miss? And I looked, and in my haste to shoot, I had hit a little sapling tree maybe i don't know the trunk might have been a little bigger around than my thumb and i mean it was right against my gun barrel i don't think the pattern really even cleared the choke tube by very much oh, no. uh, before i hit that tree and i just didn't see it but man i shot that thing just almost clean out and no i never did kill that turkey last spring i chased that bird a couple <laughs> more times and never did get him so yeah when they asked me to write about a, a quote-unquote stupid turkey that one was definitely the one but uh I, I don't think the turkey was the stupid one in that particular tale you know well so. it just goes to show even the experts even the ones that do it all the time can have nightmarish days afield and i know that was a a hard memory to share, but it sure was an entertaining story. So, folks, if you want to read more about this one and other ones about stupid turkeys, just go to fieldandstream.com. And while you're there, check out the other article that Will Brantley has there right now. It's all about honey turkeys in the rain. Will, enjoy the rest of your vacation in Texas. I hope you get a few more gobblers down there. Thanks, John. I appreciate it, man. book at Sportsman's Cove Lodge? Why is Alaska like no other place on earth? It hasn't changed in thousands of years. From the way you get here on a float plane to the way you go out with the guides and the boats, it's just a professional experience. And I said, this is as good as it gets. I said, if you can't catch fish here, you can't catch fish anywhere. Your experience with us will leave you speechless. Book now at alaskasbestlodge.com. Hunting and fishing are exercises in hope. Before you head into the woods, you hope to tag out on a deer you'll have to field dress. Before you make that first cast, you hope for a big fish to clean and fillet. When your hopes are realized, you'll need a sharp knife. Whether you sharpen that blade on a power sharpener in the shop or a manual sharpener in the field, WorkSharp has the tool for you. Look for WorkSharp products in sporting and stores near you or online at WorkSharpTools.com. Come explore the Dalles in Oregon for outdoors fun. Hike amongst the wildflowers, bike our riverfront trail, or visit the Gorge Discovery Center where you can enjoy a live raptor display. Or even check out our National Neon Sign Museum. But don't forget the fishing. We've got salmon, steelhead, bass, walleye, and monster-sized sturgeon waiting just for you. When the day is done, tell those tall tales at one of our wineries, breweries, or restaurants and plan your next adventure. Find out more at explorethedalles.com. 
Looking to reel in the marketing opportunity of a lifetime? Then set the hook because we've got it right here. America Outdoors Radio has sponsorships available, and we offer an affordable platform to reach thousands of listeners interested in fishing, hunting, and the outdoors. Find out more by contacting host John Cruz through his website at AmericanOutdoorsRadio.com. That's AmericanOutdoorsRadio.com. But hurry, if you wait too long, this big opportunity might just get away. That's AmericanOutdoorsRadio.com. You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our next stop is the great state of Virginia. We are catching up with Ken Perot. He is the Outdoors Rambler. And if you uh, haven't already, you should really check out his website at OutdoorsRambler.com. Ken, great to have you back on the air. John, great to talk to you again. And uh, your listeners, thanks for having me on. Well, you've been a busy man as of late. I just wanted to catch folks up with you. Number one, congratulations. You won the Tom Kelly Communicator of the Year Award from the National Wild Turkey Federation at their annual convention. Tell us how you got this honor. Well, let me just say I was blown away when I was notified that I was selected for it. It was huge, very unexpected, and one that left me very grateful and humbled. You know, there's so many deserving outdoor communicators out there. And what made it especially meaningful was that this was the 50th anniversary of the National Wild Turkey Federation, and that organization was founded in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And that's where I've been writing outdoor columns for the local daily paper for the last 25 years. And I did meet Tom Rogers once and wrote about him, and he founded the NWTF in 1973. And he actually used to hunt with friends of mine in Caroline County. I think the recognition's a bit, it's, while they present it annually, I'm not sure it's really an annual award or, or work that's done over the course of one year. I think it's a bit of recognition for a body of work over some years. And what some folks told me is that uh, when I write, I always try to bridge the, the how-to, where-to, the the hunting excitement aspect or fishing excitement back to a conservation angle to you know tie it all in that we need to take care of these incredible places that we love to hunt and fish or we're not going to have them forever and they won't be there for future generations. So I think that had a big bearing on it. Well, it's certainly quite an honor from a great organization, NWTF. Let's go ahead and let's talk a little bit about your dog, Jameson. Is it a he or a she that's a Boykin Spaniel? It's a he. It's a he. All right. I understand, uh, uh, stalking you on Facebook, that in March you got to take a trip to the Shady Grove Hunting Preserve, and looks like you got some chucker there. Yeah, we do. You know, Jameson, he's a Boykin Spaniel. It's a breed that originated in South Carolina. It was really a crossbreed from several different breeds put together by a guy named Whit Boykin over generations, and they just have incredible hunting chops. He was trained mainly as a duck dog when he was a puppy. He went and he got his AKC junior hunter rating and I take him out a few times a year, a lot of times in swamps or beaver marshes, smaller water, and we do some duck hunting. He doesn't get to go out upland a lot. So I try to get him into a preserve once, twice, three times a year. And he, he just has a blast. I have a blast with him. You know, most of the upland birds around here anymore, there's hardly any wild quail. So we hunt preserves where the birds are put out. I'm a little he intrigued is, about the Boykin Spaniel. Nicknames like Swamp Poodle and Canoe Dog. How'd they get those nicknames? Yeah, the Boykin, like I said, was bred in South Carolina. It's the state dog of South Carolina. Ah. And 
when the uh, when they were developing the breed, they were looking for a dog that would be very stable in canoes and you know be great at doing the classic hunts in swamps and small water places where a big dog might not be the best. You know, a lot of typical wood duck habitat and stuff like that. So yeah, they got to be called swamp poodles. That's a common term of endearment for them. Yeah. I'm going to have to look into a Boykin. Uh, you know, I lost my Springer Spaniel last summer, and I'm definitely ready for another pup to take hunting. Yep. Speaking of swampy yep. places, you recently went to Louisiana, and you weren't fishing in the swamps, but you did do a, a saltwater trip that sounded kind of fun and kind of a stormy day, too. Yeah, we were down there just last week, and the great thing about being in Louisiana in late March is that it's the start of the crawfish season, so you get to go to crawfish festivals and kind of try to eat your body weight in crawfish over the course of a week or so, <laughs> and I uh, did book a fishing trip, a one-day trip out of John Lafitte Marina, and we fished with Captain Gavin McCurchy. Gavin's a young guy. He's incredibly hardworking, born and bred in the bayou, and he really tried to get us on fish. But Oh, and I would point out, too, that that area took a pounding during Hurricane Ida back in uh, 21 or 22. But a lot of the homes were flattened, washed wow. away. They're still recovering. But, yeah, we, as my luck would have it, a line of thunderstorms developed the night before. We watched them on radar all night long, and we ended up getting delayed a couple hours before we could go out. I don't think we get the water to about 9 a.m. Our goal was to be out there at 6.30. And we made a quick run, picked up a few fish, and I think the, the low-pressure system shut things down a little bit, and it was really pretty stiff wind until about noon. Uh, but, you know, we got a half dozen redfish or so and some speckled trout, black drum, a sheephead. Good variety. I think we even caught a croaker. And we made uh, one run about 1.30 or 2 to uh, what was going to be our final stop near some islands that he knew. And I made my first cast. We're just starting to retrieve, and then all of a sudden, the sky overhead just erupted in thunder. Oh, wow. And it's never a good feeling when you're out there on the water and a pop-up storm or an isolated thunderstorm materializes right over your head. And we quickly retrieved the lines, and I asked him how far it was back to the marina and the lodge, and we had a pretty good run to go. And we saw some lightning off to the east, and we started running, and it was pouring down rain, pelting us. And when we were pulling in the stop, he didn't, he didn't tell me the plan. I saw some structures ahead, and we just made a beeline towards those structures. And it turned out it was a inland oil and gas rig, and some of the, he knew some of the guys that worked there. And apparently, it's fairly common where the, the you know, anglers get permission to you know tie up, and get out of the weather. So we tied up and climbed onto this uh, platform, went underneath it, and stayed sheltered for probably an hour, hour and a half until this really bad line of thunderstorms moved through. Wow. Okay, that definitely qualifies as a memorable fishing trip. And you're right. There's few things worse than being on the water when a thunderstorm comes your way. That is a scary proposition. Been there, done that, don't like it at all. Last but not least, got to talk a little bit about the food that you're enjoying in Louisiana. What a feast you had on display on your Facebook page. Yeah, like I said, you know, you go down to Louisiana and you got to eat. <laughs> the, the, the cooking is just so good. Different crawfish dishes. We went to the Crawfish World Boil Championships. We went to the A2 Fay Festival out in Eunice. And then we brought home 25 pounds of boiled crawfish. And we uh, peeled, the, peeled the tails and put together a recipe that involved the fillets from the fish we caught, 
uh, with a sauce, a crawfish sauce on top. It was kind of like a creamy, savory crawfish sauce. And I tell you, you, you put it over like these rustic mashed potatoes, and I just I can't eat that delicately. I just have to attack it. <laughs> and the plate gets clean pretty quickly. But uh, yeah, when you're in Louisiana, you, you got to eat. You got to you get a chance to bring back the food and try it. And you know, I I would say too, one of the big reasons why I went down to Louisiana was to go to the National World War II Museum. And if any of the listeners have not been to that museum in New Orleans, it is really a incredible experience, a visceral experience for a lot of people. Uh, there's a lot of exhibits and stuff where there's people with very moist eyes and more, where it's it's just a moving thing. So if you go down to Louisiana fishing, if you're on New Orleans, boy, make sure you hit that National World War II Museum. I will definitely put that on my list of things to do, and I bet a lot of our listeners will too. We've got to go, folks, but if you want to check out more from Ken Perot, as you just heard, he's been a very busy man. Go to his website, OutdoorsRambler.com. That's OutdoorsRambler.com. He's got all sorts of articles there. You can also follow on Facebook at Ken Perot. Ken, always enjoy catching up with you on America Outdoors Radio. Likewise, John. All the best to you. Take care. We've been telling you about Sportsman's Cove Lodge in southeast Alaska for a while now. They're truly Alaska's best lodge. Wildlife is abundant from bears and deer to eagles and whales. And let's not forget the reason you're here, the fishing. Halibut, salmon, lingcod, rockfish, true cod, and more. It's all waiting for you in abundance at Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Book your trip today at alaskasbestlodge.com. That's alaskasbestlodge.com for Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nationwide nonprofit organization dedicated to providing hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under who suffer from life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. These adventures make big differences in the lives of those who participate in them, and in many cases are literally a dream come true that brings hope and therapy to their lives. Find out more, get involved, or donate today at huntofalifetime.org. That's huntofalifetime.org. Huntofalifetime.org. Welcome back to America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our next stop is Bishop, Georgia, home of the Georgia Bulldogs, that perennial powerhouse in the SEC when it comes to college football. And if you hear some birds tweeting in the background, there's a reason for that. We are talking to Mike Arnold. He's a professor at the University of Georgia. He's actually outside for our little phone conversation today. And what kind of birds are you being joined with? <laughs> hey, John, we have mockingbirds are mostly what you're going to be hearing out here, but there's also a beautiful raptor out here, a little hawk, so it's going to be squealing a little bit as well. I absolutely love it. <laughs> so let, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about your book, Bringing Back the Lions, and it's all about the Southeast African country of Mozambique and the Zambezi Delta and the ecosystem there. Why don't we start off by telling folks a little bit about the good old days in the 60s and the 70s when a lot of folks were going over there for safaris. What was the, the lay of the land like back then and the animal? Yeah, so it was a paradise 
and for the 60s and 70s, up until the mid-70s, it was really a paradise. A lot of professional hunters that people would be familiar with, uh, both European and some Americans, PHs, as well as locals from South Africa and, and Mozambique itself. The In this area that I was in, it's called Katata 11, and Katata is just a Portuguese term for a hunting concession because it was a Portuguese colony up until 1975 when the Mozambique folks got their independence from Portugal. So Katata, that's all it means, is a hunting concession. Katata 11 and that whole, what it's called the Marameo Complex, which is south of the Zambezi River. It's called the Zambezi Delta. It's like the Delta around New Orleans where I work a lot on plant species. So it's, you know, it's where the river spreads out. That mouth of that river spreads out and then finally goes into the ocean. The Zambezi Delta is the same way, except it's not as controlled as our Mississippi River is. So that area was game-rich. It was wildlife-rich. It was plant-rich. It was everything. Because it's a tropical area, because it's a deltaic system, the soil is very rich. So to give you some numbers, okay, the sable antelope that were there were in, say, that people would probably think about as hunters. Oh, they were in the tens of thousands. The water buck were up around 26, 30,000. The buffalo, 45. Cape buffalo were 45,000. The zebra were also in the, the there's salu zebras there. They were also in the thousands. That was up until the War for Independence in 75, and then really up until the Civil War between the government and the rebels started in 1977. But up until that point, it was a game-rich and a destination for game-rich area and a destination for hunters. So Paradise became Paradise Lost after that. What happened? Well, what happened was the Mozambique folks knew that it was a game-rich area, obviously. So you had the government troops were in the urban areas. They were holed up there, basically, holding on to those. And the rebel troops were out in the countryside, out in the bush. The rebel troops set up in that area, in the Zambezi Delta, in this Marameo complex, and they literally put in a, basically a meatpacking area. And what they did was they shot everything that was a large protein source. So what I'd named the buffaloes, the sable antelopes, the water bucks, etc., and they use those to feed their troops all around the country, okay? And so you went from, for example, 45,000 Cape Buffaloes in 1977 at the beginning of the Civil War. 1992, you had 1,200 left. Oh you had gosh. eight eight zebras left, literally eight individuals. Oh, my God. You had 250 water bucks from a total population of 26,000 at the start. You had the sable antelopes were down to estimated about 30 individuals. Now, let me hasten to add, I'm a research scientist. They had game counts before the Civil War. Okay, they had them in 75, they had them in 76. So they knew how many animals were there from aerial surveys, etc. In 1992 and following on, they had game counts again. That's how they know how these populations had crashed. They weren't guessing, they actually were counting. So enter your story, bringing back the lions. International hunters 
and local tribes people got together to restore this ecosystem and to get these numbers back up. How did this come about? Well, you had an entrepreneur, Carlos Faria, and he's chapter one in my book. <laughs> and you, a nicer guy you would not meet. Ironically, Carlos was with Caterpillar, and uh, he was one of their marketers, and had done well, you know, really well all over the world. So he was a business person, but a marketer. He got into tourism, and he decided he would have three pillars of tourism, and one of those pillars of, you know, like hotels and things like that, but one of those, he wanted to do trophy hunting, and he wanted a concession. And this is the ironic part. When I was interviewing him, I said, Carlos, do you hunt? And he said, no, I don't hunt or fish. He said, I never have. I said, do you have objections to it? Obviously, I didn't think he did. And he said, no. He said, you just have to work too hard and you have to get up too early. He said, I just you know, can't be bothered with either one of those things. So Carlos is a, is a Mozambican. His mom was a black Mozambican woman. His dad was from the Azores, uh, which is an island chain off of Portugal, and they met and married, and Carlos was born and raised and has always lived in Mozambique. So he went around and he asked people, professional hunters and outfitters, where in Mozambique, if you were, this was just at the end of the Civil War, they hadn't signed the peace treaty yet in Rome, but he, uh, he went around and said, where would you go? And they said, Katata 11, mm-hmm. and that Marameo complex absolutely go there. He said, do you know what it's like? And they said, heck no, nobody's been there for 15 years. You'd get shot. You know, we assume it's not in good shape, but if you were asking us where it used to be great, that was the greatest place. So Carlos went in and bought the lease from the government, sight unseen, before the Civil War was over. And he said that he can still hear the echoes of laughter from all of his friends who were business people laughing at him for this crazy move that he did. Carlos then brought in an outfitter, professional hunter, a young guy named at that time, Mark Haldane. Mark's still not that old, by the way. He's not as old as I am. But he brought Mark Haldane from South Africa and said, Mark, I need you to run this place for me. He said, I don't know anything about hunting. Mark had had his own outfitting operation in South Africa, still does, and he brought him in. And the first thing they had to do was to do a reconnoiter of that area. The only way you could get in at that time, they'd signed the peace accord now. The rebels had agreed to lay down their arms. The government agreed to allow the rebels to lay down their arms with no consequences. So they sent in a team of people. They walked into this area from the nearest town, which was not that close. They got into the area, and they were captured by the rebels, (laughs) (laughs) who had not laid down their guns yet because they didn't know anything about uh, Peace Accord. And so that, that was in 92, and they finally got them out of there. Nobody was hurt. They convinced the rebels through you know, their connections with, with the UN and all that look, they were just there on a business deal. They were not they're not there to spy or anything else. So they pulled them out and they waited full year and then Mark went in with a client, one client. And I say in the book that the client did not sign up to be captured, and they weren't, uh, <laughs> but they got a Cape Buffalo, I think it was, and now I'm sitting here, I wrote this book, and they did, they got a couple of other things. Red Diker was one of them. And so it wasn't an, you know, a very auspicious start, either one of those years, but they slowly started building those populations up, taking very few animals each year, very few hunters, but investing in the area. 
We have got to go ahead and wrap this up for now, but would you mind sticking around for one more segment so we can share, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story? (laughs) I would absolutely love to do that. All right, stick around, folks. You'll hear more from Mike Arnold, the author of Bringing Back the Lions in Mozambique, right after this short break. This portion of the show is brought to you by our friends at WorkSharp. And if you are hunting this fall, you know the importance of a sharp knife. You're going to need it for gutting that animal, butchering that animal, taking the hide off that animal, and there's a good chance... You have to sharpen it more than once while you're doing these things in the field. That's why a pocket knife sharpener or the guided field sharpener from WorkSharp are great items to have with you. Whether you're after deer, elk, pronghorn, or bear, a sharp knife helps you get things done after you drop that animal. Look for WorkSharp products at sporting goods stores, hardware stores, and ranch and home stores near you, or online at WorkSharpTools.com. That's WorkSharpTools.com. Ready to step up to a quality-built rifle or shotgun that's a true classic? Check out Henry Repeating Arms, American-made. There's over 200 models to choose from in a variety of finishes and calibers for hunters and target shooters. Many of these are lever-action models with a look right out of the Old West. Don't be deceived, though. Henry Repeating Arms are modern, rugged, accurate, reliable, and have a lifetime guarantee. Find out more and order a free catalog today at HenryUSA.com. That's HenryUSA.com. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nationwide nonprofit organization dedicated to providing hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under who suffer from life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. These adventures make big differences in the lives of those who participate in them, and in many cases are literally a dream come true that brings hope and therapy to their lives. Find out more, get involved, or donate today at huntofalifetime.org. That's huntofalifetime.org. Huntofalifetime.org. Campers, adventure seekers, hunters, and foodies. No matter the lifestyle, we can all agree on one thing. Great food and great people are worth remembering. At Camp Chef, we don't just make grills. We create each product knowing that a warm meal is always better when it's shared with those we love. Learn more about Camp Chef grills, smokers, and portable cooking equipment at CampChef.com. That's CampChef.com for a better way to cook outdoors. Attention, small business owners. This could be the most important 10-minute call you will ever make. You may be eligible to receive up to $26,000 per employee through the Employee Retention Credit. Call Omega Accounting Solutions to see if your business is eligible to recover payroll tax pay during the pandemic. All it takes is a quick, easy, free 10-minute consultation to determine your qualifications. Call Omega Accounting Solutions at 800-309-ERC. Omega's knowledgeable staff will streamline the process of filing complicated paperwork. Omega is the small business champion with teams dedicated to maximizing tax credits. CPAs even turn to Omega for ERC guidance. Take advantage of this exclusive small business tax credit before it's too late. The three-year sunset deadline is setting soon. So find out if you qualify today. Call 800-309-ERC. That's 800-309-ERC. Or visit OmegaTaxCredits.com.
You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We've got Mike Arnold back with us. He is the author of Bringing Back the Lions, How International Hunters and Local Tribes People Restored the Ecosystem in the Zambezi Delta of Mozambique. If you just heard our last segment, you heard that it was paradise, and then due to a civil war, it became paradise lost with just about all big game species eradicated. Yes, you're hearing some birds in the background because Mike is coming at us from his yard in Bishop, Georgia, the home of the Georgia Bulldogs. Mike, thanks for sticking around. Hey, I love it. I talk too long, don't I? You know, it's a great story. Usually don't have guests stick around for two segments, but I couldn't leave it where it was. So where we ended was the Civil War is over, and this person from Mozambique has leased the concession from the government, and he sent in his first professional hunter, and they begged their first Cape buffalo, and now they're rebuilding the population. How are they going about doing that? It was a two-pronged attack, okay? So let me give you just a real quick sketch. Mozambique has one of the highest malnutrition rates of any African country. It's about 47%. Really, really, really high among kids. You see that swollen belly in little ones, news reports and all. That's what's called kwashiorkor, and what that is is protein deficiency. Kids are getting carbohydrates like maize or whatever else, but they're not getting any protein. The first thing to do was to start feeding the local folks. It would have been 47% malnutrition there at the time that Mark and Carlos and others went in. They have zero now. Zero quashicores, zero malnutrition. They have a middle class developed. So I've fast forwarded. So the first thing, though, that they did was start using the game animal meat to feed the local folks to prove to them the one of the major benefits they were going to get out of this if they would help restore this area. The second is anti-poaching, and that goes on till today as well. Feeding the local population all the meat, giving them the meat, getting them you know that sustenance, and then the anti-poaching. It started out slow. They had to go in and pick up thousands of snares and gin traps and all sorts of different ways of capturing animals, and they had to slowly convince the local populations, the Santa villagers, that this was worthwhile. As they saw the employment coming in, etc., and they saw their meat coming in, as they saw the, because they take 20% off the top of all of the, when I go in and hunt there, 20% of what I pay goes straight into the villages and into the villagers' pockets, and so they started seeing this. So 1992, you had eight zebras. I'm going to give you some stats. Today, there's probably about 1,800. Okay, 92, eight zebras, now about 18, maybe up to 2,000. You had 1,200 Cape buffaloes. Now you have over 45,000. Oh, wow. You had 250 water bucks. You now are back up to around 26,000. You had, you know, hartebeests were gone. You now have thousands and thousands of hartebeests. You were down to 30 sable antelopes. Now they have close to 5,000. So all of this came about because of selective hunting, very closely controlled permits that Mark insisted on, Carlos insisted on, and the Mozambique government insisted on. And slowly those quotas have been raised. 
but they are still tightly controlled. Now, of course, the 100K buffaloes or so that are taken every year, they're all old males. All of these are mature males out of any species that they're taking. And, of course, with those kinds of numbers, you're not even touching those species. Right. <laughs> you know, however... You know, those animals are now spreading out all over the landscape, not just Katata 11. Well, I love this Paradise Restored story, and I love how professional hunters, and like you said, local tribes, people, and businessmen help turn this around. And I think there's a, a big misconception from a lot of folks. I mean, there's a lot of anti-hunters out there, especially when it comes to African safaris, who just think that the hunters are there to get their trophies, but they don't see the benefits to the local population. And this is a great story about how hunting really has benefited the local population. It's absolutely true. The other thing that you have to remember is that Mozambique, across Mozambique, one of the highest death rates from malaria, and that's normally in young and old, but mostly in young kids under about three years of age. It has one of the highest. I mean, it is, you know, 30, 40 percent, whatever it is now. It has one of the highest rates. It's near zero in Katata 11 because they have a clinic and they give out free drugs. So when someone catches malaria, whether it's a pregnant woman or a child, an older person, they immediately put them on to the curative and they don't die from it. And so it's just like the quashicor, the protein deficiency. It's no longer there. And people are opening up small stores. They're living near a school. They have their own agricultural fields. Every bit of they have their own portable mill that they take around for folks to use for their millet and, and mate. Every bit of that, including the tractor that plows the field, was bought with $100. And the animals are, have come back, and it's not just what we go out to hunt as hunters. I'm talking about songbirds. They bring in birders who are not necessarily hunters at the end of their season every year because some of the rarest forms in Africa occur there because they've protected the woodlands and the open savannas and the pans and all of that. It's an amazing place. It really is. Well, it's an amazing story, but uh, we've got to add one more thing. You haven't once mentioned the subject of the title of your book. It's Bringing Back the Lions. <laughs> what about the lions? What happened to the lions, and, and how have they been brought back? Yeah, so the Cabela Family Foundation is really the instrument here, both the lions, and they also reintroduced cheetahs in 21. I'm going back to write an update for both the lions and cheetahs in June to these reintroductions. The lions were introduced. There were no lions there. They introduced 24. They're now close to 80, and that's after about four years. So they have pride structures and all of this. They haven't been hunted, obviously. They're just in there. The cheetahs will never be hunted. They reintroduced because they're just not on the game list. They were reintroduced and they're doing well. I just saw photos of cubs again sit to me today. And so it's it's a you know a wonderful story. But I will tell you, John, this is millions of dollars that you're seeing that the Cabela Family Foundation is invested in this. It is not cheap. And they are willing to do it because they believe in restoring ecosystems. And one of the restoration parts of this had to be the apex predators. I'm a biologist, so I, I feel pretty passionate about this right. to get those back in there. And they knew it. And I talked to Mark Haldane one time, and I said, what happens when one of these lions nails your $10,000 sable bull? He said, that's just the part of doing business. If we really want this ecosystem, these series of ecosystems back, we need the lions back. I thought it was amazing. 
Well, the whole story sounds amazing, and I'm hoping that some anti-hunter out there is listening to this interview today, because <laughs> hopefully we've changed your minds about hunting in Africa. Certainly a wonderful success story in Mozambique. Folks, if you want to get a copy of this book, Bringing Back the Lions, here's where to go. If you can get a signed copy from Mike Arnold at his website, MikeArnoldOutdoors.com. That's MikeArnoldOutdoors.com. Get a signed copy of Bringing Back the Lions, or you can always just buy it at Amazon or your local bookstore, too. But you won't get that signed copy like you would at MikeArnoldOutdoors.com. So head over to that website today. Find out more about this remarkable story of Paradise Lost and then Paradise Restored in Mozambique in the Zambezi Delta. Mike, thanks for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Thank you, John. If you plan on going on an African safari, whether it be to Mozambique or another country and you're after big game, consider bringing along a lever-action rifle from Henry Repeating Arms chambered in 4570. That caliber will take down just about anything you're going to come across in Africa. And it's a venerable cartridge that's been upgraded. Used to be used for buffalo in the American West, but some companies like Buffalo Bore Ammunition have got it enhanced to the point where it'll work quite well on African game. If you're after planes game in Africa, you might want to consider the Henry Long Ranger, chambered in either 6.5 Creedmoor or the good old Winchester 308. All of these rifles are made right here in the USA, and they are rugged, they're reliable, exactly what you need when you're facing down big game in Africa. Either one will work just fine on those lighter hoofed animals. You can check out the entire lineup of rifles from Henry Repeating Arms at their website. You'll find that at HenryUSA.com. That's HenryUSA.com, and don't forget to ask for your free decals and catalog while you're there. On that note, we have got to go. But I hope you've enjoyed our guest commentary as much as I have. My thanks to Mike Arnold, to Will Brantley, and to Ken Perot for some great conversations today. Hopefully, they inspired you to get out there and enjoy some of what Mother Nature has to offer when it comes to hunting and fishing. And as I leave you, I hope that you are blessed in the days ahead and that you do remember this. It is your country and your outdoors, so get out there and enjoy it. (laughs) 